Hi, this is Matthew Asbell, a trademark and intellectual property attorney and principal at Offit Kerman in New York City. And you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 119 of the IP Fridays podcast. My name is Kenneth Suzanne, and together with my co-host, Rolf Clayson, we are pleased to continue to deliver our podcast to you for your listening enjoyment. Our guest today is Matthew Asbell, a partner in the New York City office of Offit Kerman, and we will talk about the growing trend of mass trademark filers, register clutter, and Deadwood trademark registrations at the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Before we get to the interview, let's talk about another development in the United States. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and in view of the critical need to develop and help speed to market medical products and services to combat COVID-19, the United States Patent and Trademark Office initiated the COVID-19 Prioritized Trademark Examination Program in June of 2020. To further support efforts to combat COVID-19, the USPTO is now initiating a pilot prioritized review program for appeals related to COVID-19, in which the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board will expedite the review and issuance of ex parte appeal decisions for applications examined under the COVID-19 Prioritized Trademark Examination Program. To further support these efforts, the USPTO will initiate a conference pilot program for oppositions against applications related to COVID-19. With this program, a TTAB attorney or judge may participate in the party's mandatory settlement and discovery planning conference, as is always available upon request of a party, if the involved application was examined under the COVID-19 Prioritized Trademark Examination Program. Such conferences can be useful to the parties to provide clarity and procedural information. We have a link with further information in this episode's show notes for further information on this development. Now, on to the interview with Matthew Asbell, which was recorded at the end of April 2021. Our guest today on the IP Fridays podcast is Matthew Asbell. Matthew is a partner with the law firm of Offit Kerman and is based in the firm's New York City office. Matthew assists clients in clearing, obtaining, enforcing, and defending trademark rights in the United States and throughout the world. He also provides advice on patents, copyrights, domain names, and other related areas. Matthew frequently collaborates on and authors articles on intellectual property, on subjects ranging from social media and domain names to licensing, branding, and information technology. He is an active speaker and lecturer and is a frequent moderator and panelist at the ABA, INTA, and other conferences. He has been an adjunct professor of law at Fordham University, the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law, and Columbia University. Matthew received his BS in psychology with a minor in music composition from Carnegie Mellon University 
and attended the Medical College of Pennsylvania, which is now part of Drexel University. He received his JD from the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law, where he was the president of the Intellectual Property Law Society and acquisitions editor of the top-ranked Cardozo Arts and Entertainment Law Journal. Prior to becoming a lawyer, he managed emerging singer-songwriters and recording artists, trained corporate employees of a pharmaceutical company to use software applications, and studied medicine. Welcome, Matthew, to the IP Fridays podcast. Thanks a lot, Ken. Matthew, uh, before we get into the topic of the rise of mass filers and register clutter at the USPTO, can you tell our listeners what led you to practice IP law? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, I think um, m- much of my background is very varied, as you can tell from my long-winded bio. Um, I've, I've been uh, I've been a scientist. Uh, I've been an artist. Um, I've been a business person, and uh, throughout uh, all of those experiences and having swerved through the earlier parts of my life, um, the one thing that tied everything together was intellectual property. So I went to law school essentially knowing that I wanted to do intellectual property, and here I am still today. Yes. Now, do you have any advice for law students who want to practice in the field of law or maybe even college students who are getting ready to go to law school? Yeah, I mean, definitely um, they need to supplement their studies. Um, You know, what you get in law school and, you know, is often the foundations, uh, sometimes only a survey course, depending on where you're going to school. Um, And the way to supplement that is with real experience and mingling with practitioners and learning about what things that they're addressing. So I often suggest to law students that they um, that they join and volunteer regularly in bar associations and other industry associations and recognize that they're welcome there. There they should um, they should call in, raise their hand and offer to do to do things because that will get them experience and will also introduce them to prospective employers. That's a very good advice indeed. So let's move on to today's topic, which I'm very interested in. Uh, I understand that you wrote with your firm partner, Laura Winston, an article about the rise of mass filers and register clutter at the USPTO uh, that was recently published by the World Trademark Review. Let's dive into those issues. What is referred to as dead wood in the context of U.S. trademarks? This sounds like a trivia question. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, um, the concept of dead wood is, is narrowly defined, really, to, to refer to U.S. trademark registrations um, for which the marks are not actually being used in U.S. commerce. Um, and so those registrations... Uh, essentially block others from registering their marks uh, in the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Mm -hmm. But it it has a more expansive, well, I guess dead wood doesn't necessarily have a more expansive definition, but there are related uh, aspects of that. It's not just that there are registrations for marks that are not in use, but rather there are also registrations for marks that are only in use for a, a, a certain limited set of the goods and services for which they're registered. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there are um, new, many, many new pending applications um, for trademarks. Although they claim to be in use, uh, it, it, it appears that many may not be. Um, and so those all kind of mixed together 
in my head, become the become the the problem, even if the definition of dead wood is sort of more narrowly defined. Mm-hmm. And just let's take a, a little look into this mass filing issue and register clutter. Can you give our listeners a bit of a summary of what's going on and what you're finding? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, basically for about a decade, um, there there has been a problem um, in, in the trademark office, in the United States trademark office, with these types of dead wood the more expansive definition of Deadwood um, registrations and applications. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and there have been struggles by the trademark office and by the by the practice outside to address address the problem. The problem really comes from um, the US concept that trademarks need to be used in order to support registration. Um, and that doesn't apply in most countries around the world, uh, at least not in the in- initial period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, um, you know, this has been a problem for a long time and the trademark office and the practice and the bar have taken steps to try to address it. And they've gone kind of from one end of the pendulum to the other over time. And they keep swinging back and forth and try- trying to address this problem. Um, why is it a problem is really because when legitimate, uh, businesses wish to adopt a new trademark, a new brand, um, they they go to do, they usually will do some sort of clearance. Um, and even if they don't, right, they file their applications. Many are being blocked. And, and this is because now, uh, the, 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 the register of trademarks in the United States is so cluttered with all this, uh, with all these marks that are not in use, that are much, you know, there are only so many words or groups of words you can come up with. And, um, and so as someone comes up with a new brand, even if they do a good job being creative and coming up with something more distinctive, there's still a greater chance that they're going to encounter some other party with a prior registration or application that's blocking them. And that's going to cost them more. And it may even ultimately get them to, you know, to give up or to change their, their branding. Mm-hmm. And is this problem worse here in the United States than elsewhere in the world? And maybe you can give us some insight into that. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, I think it's perceived as a bigger problem here because of this fundamental aspect of U.S. law, of U.S. trademark law that we require use uh, in order to grant a registration. Um, in most countries around the world, you just have to apply. Um, you don't need to even be, you know, even, even be ha- having use or even have a bona fide intent to use. You you apply in most countries. Um, sometimes you have a, a you have to give your reason, but you don't have to prove that you're using it. And you can't be challenged typically until either three years or five years after you've had the registration. So you have a long time before you have to be using it. Mm-hmm. So most countries around the world, the clutter is a natural clutter because people who are interested go and file and register their marks. And there isn't this worry about, gee, are they using it or not? In the United States, uh, and perhaps because we're one of the you know, targets where people do want to register more than in many other countries, um, it becomes more of a problem. We want them to be using their marks. And, um, you know, and so I think it's perceived as a greater problem here because of that issue. Mm-hmm. So we've identified this problem. Uh, what do you think about the USPTO's efforts over time and plans, including under the newly enacted Trademark Modern- Modernization Act, uh, to clear the register of the so-called dead wood? 
Well, they're, they have been piecemeal over the years. Um, and the latest effort is through the Trademark Modernization Act, um, you know, which was signed into law um, right at the end of, of last year. Um, and uh, it, it does provide tools, it, you know, and, and I think that's really what the USPTO has been doing. It has been sort of building a tool belt of multiple things that could be done either by it or by practitioners to address the problem. Mm-hmm. But in the context of the new applications that are being uh, that are being filed, and, and right now there is what's called a surge, you know, of hundreds of thousands of applications, mostly coming in from China, um, um, and um, and these applications, you know, will not be subject to much of the uh, tools that to many of the tools that have come as a result of the Trademark Modernization Act. The only tool that the Trademark Modernization Act will give uh, to allow allow people to address um, the new applications is a formalized version of the letters of protest, um, which now has a fee associated with it. So essentially, we can tell the trademark office that it ought to take notice of you know someone of our prior rights or of the fact that someone's specimen is fraudulent or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. But I think it's piecemeal, and uh, and I don't think. I think the Trademark Modernization Act will go a short way to resolving the, the Deadwood problem. Aside from the letters of protest that you mentioned, are there any other tools that are mentioned uh, in, the, in the act? There are, not tool, there are not other tools in the act that target pending applications. Okay. There are tools in the act that target um, the Deadwood registrations. So if, if you find that your trademark application is refused based on someone's prior registration, there are new, there will be new tools. They're not yet implemented, but there will be new tools that will allow you to, um, to challenge those registrations on grounds that they are, are, are not in use or have never been used. Okay. Um, and there will be tools to allow the trademark office to re-examine a, a, you know, an existing registration uh, on, on, the, on that front. So it, it will be easier. I mean, there will be, there will be easier grounds for cancellation in, in the trademark trial and appeal board. Um, it will be easier. There will be proceedings set up to try to tackle these deadwood registrations, but that will not, for the most part, address the hundreds of thousands of new applications. Yes. Now, do you think clearing the deadwood will resolve this problem? Is there anything else that's wrong with the system, in your opinion? Well, I, what I think is wrong with the system is, you know, one that we take this sort of piecemeal approach to how we we're going to attack it, and you know the trademark office uh, raised its, its, its many of its fees um, at the beginning of this year, in part because it needed to build up personnel and to build up technology to address these problems. Um, but what I what I've always felt is that the problem lies in the assumptions that the trademark examining core makes in relation to trademark applications. And that is when people claim use of a trademark, the evidence that they submit and the only evidence really evaluated by the trademark office in that context is whether the use is as, whether the use is functioning as a trademark. Really does the use, you know, as it, as it looks there, look like 
it serves the trademark function by identifying source. Mm -hmm. What doesn't do is evaluate or require the attorney um, or, or applicant to make a make a, a statement as to how the mark is actually used in U.S. commerce. And because we don't have to actually say, we don't actually have to state how the mark is used in U.S. commerce, and the U.S. Trademark Office will accept essentially a blanket statement that the mark has been used in U.S. commerce, then it relies on those assumptions. And relying on those assumptions means it's allowing marks to get through that, that you know, and applications to get through and registrations to be maintained that shouldn't otherwise be. Mm -hmm. So I think that we should be asking, we should be asking, the, you know, the bar and the, the applicants to affirmatively state, you know, in what way they believe that the mark is used in U.S. commerce, mm -hmm. because I think that would enable us to more readily challenge it if it really is not. Now, do you think trademark attorneys uh, are making the problem better or worse under these uh, facts? It's probably both. You know, I mean, we're using tools that are available to us, um, but um, but I think we recognize that that the tools are insufficient. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that um, we are struggling to be creative in how to service our clients' needs in this context um, because clients are used to a certain cost. Um, you know, it's fairly inexpensive, right, typically to obtain to register trademarks. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now there there are all of these added uh, added costs and reasons why um, why applicants and registrants may may give up um, and reasons why we as outside counsel may not be able to serve serve them because they won't have a tolerance for the budgetary um, needs to to pursue the options available to us. Are you finding in your own practice that you're running into a lot of these Deadwood um, registrations, and are you finding that you're having to do like in-use searches more often than not? Depends on the client. Um, a lot of clients just don't have the tolerance um, necessarily to 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 do the due diligence that they should. Um, those that those that do. Um, you know, yes, I think that, that we do encounter um, Deadwood registrations fairly frequently. Um, you know, when a client has tolerance to address that type of registration, um, you know, we typically do seek cancellation and, um, you know, prior, well prior to the Trademark Modernization Act. And in many instances, those registrations go away by default. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it's I think the problem is that, I mean, it's been made a little bit more expensive to do that. Uh, and, um, really that there's a, there's some, some risk associated with initiating that proceeding and, uh, and, and clients have a fear, right. Of what they might be getting themselves into by pursuing that. I think the TMA addresses that well by giving, giving us tools to equip the trademark office to address it with, uh, with the other party, but um, but it's still um, I still I still think it's not enough. Mm -hmm. Now, what what can attorneys do to help the USPTO and to help their clients? In your opinion, well, the the, the probably the most important thing that attorneys can can do is is stay abreast of of what's going on 
right now with this with the Trademark Modernization Act. And as soon as the rulemaking comes out in relation to that, um, which is expected probably within about a month, um, you know, to carefully review that and to give comments to the trademark office. I mean, the good thing about the trademark office, um, especially in recent years, is it is very receptive to commentary and it does adjust, uh, you know, based on feedback. So what we need to be doing is, is, you know, look at what the rules are and let them know how it impacts us and how it impacts our clients. Mm -hmm. Um, Propose alternatives, Uh, you know, be out there talking about it and addressing it. I do that frequently through, uh, you know, through bar association involvement, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, but you, you can do it individually or on behalf of your firm, too. Um, several of us uh, in, in 2019 were very effective in, um, in getting the trademark office to change what many of us perceived to be a very problematic policy with regards to having to give in the direct email addresses of, of, of our clients. Yes. That was a big issue. Yeah. And, and, you know, I can't remember. I think it was a hundred of us, 99 of us, something like that, who jointly wrote a letter, uh, to the trademark office about that. And when Commissioner Gooder joined, uh, the trademark office, he promptly addressed that, uh, and, you know, made it. So even though we do have to still give an applicant email address, that applicant email address doesn't necessarily have to go directly to, um, to the client. Mm-hmm. Now, if people want to comment, like you were talking about, is there a place on the Patent and Trademark Office website for people to do that? Yeah, when the rulemaking comes out, I mean, they, they have a platform where you can where you can post comments, but I believe they usually give you multiple ways in which you can do it. Um, so, like, there's usually an email address or, or you know a place that you can write to usually in, in the rulemaking. Um, sometimes the Trademark Office posts it, and I'm, the name is escaping me off the top of my head right now, but um, sometimes it posts uh, onto this particular website uh, for informal feedback mm-hmm. uh, before it actually does a formal rulemaking. I'm not sure if they're planning to do that uh, this time around because they're on a time crunch. They have to finalize the rule and, and start implementing it by the end of the year. Excellent. Well, Matthew, we're getting close to the end of our podcast here. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this uh, issue. I know it's important for many trademark practitioners and their clients throughout the world. Um, And I appreciate your contribution today to the IP Fridays podcast. Thanks, Ken. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to to, to speak with you and to to be on the program. And I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program 
are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.